I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're delighted to say this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Brewing Folk. Brewing Folk celebrates all the people who visit Verdant Brewing Co. and its taproom. White Rabbit will be collaborating with Verdant this year and we can highly recommend their beers. Find out more at brewingfolk.co or order yourself something to drink from verdantbrewing.co. I've decided to start today's episode with a book written at the end of the last century, reprinted last year. It's about something quite relevant to me as someone making a podcast. It's about listening. Hello, are you with me? I can hear your brain whirring, you know. Stay with me, that's better. It's called Quantum Listening, and it's a curious, playful book by composer Pauline Oliveros, a towering figure from the very early days of electronic music. She was fascinated with listening deeply to sound two decades before Brian Eno invented ambient music. In 1953, for example, for her 21st birthday, she got a tape recorder, recording the street outside, obsessing about the sounds she hadn't noticed before. In 1962, she was an original member of the San Francisco Tape Music Centre, although its male co-founders, Morgan Subotnik and Ramon Sender, get much more prominence on Wikipedia, I should say. And later, she famously recorded in caves, exploring their deep bass, their heavy resonance. She also worked with all sorts of people, visual artists, choirs, and sonic youth. This reprint of a 1999 essay brings together academic thinking with cosmic questions that a lot of us might ask. What is listening for? Does sound have consciousness? Pauline encourages us to remember how open we were to sounds as children, how listening shapes our culture, and how listening can change us. So pause for a moment. Did you hear that? Whatever I was, I hope you liked it. That's my recommendation for this week. Now, on to today's episode of Songbook. And a guest who was born the same year as my mum, although she's had quite a different life to my mum, unless my mother's been provocative in a prolific way on the sly. You never know. My guest, not my mum, is a writer, composer, artist and electronic pop and noise pioneer, born in Hull, who considered herself lucky, she said, to be thrown out by her parents at 16. She became a central cog in the Coombe Collective, recontextualising art as something that should be found on the street and in the post, and not just among the elites and in galleries. Although, of course, Coombe's 1976 retrospective, Prostitution, was famously in the ICA. The use of my guest's bloody tampons in one artwork led to one Tory MP very famously calling her a wrecker of civilization. Quite an ironic thing to be said by a Tory MP. My guest has made brilliant music ever since with Throbbing Gristle and Chris and Cozy. I recommend spending a day listening to the music of Chris and Cozy in the car. I did it recently. It was amazing. And of course, she's made lots of music by herself. She's also written two fascinating books, 
her memoir art sex music and last year's Resisters, about her explorations of the lives of Delia Derbyshire and Marjorie Kemp alongside her own. A big welcome to Songbook to Cosy Fanny Tutti. Hey Cosy, how are you? I'm okay. I've never been introduced as um, being born the same time as someone's mother before. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's all right. You know, my mum. Hi, mum, if you're listening. I don't know if she is, probably isn't. Um, it just struck me how very different your life and my mum's life was. You know, my mum's from a poor town, Swansea. She didn't, sadly, go and, uh, you know, do very interesting um, art performances on the streets of that particular city like you did. And maybe it's a, a wish that she'd be more like you. <laughs> Um, so obviously, um, lots of people listening will know you, well, they will know your books. Um, but for those who don't, um, you're cozy because of um, many years ago, your, um, well, he wasn't your partner then, but he became your partner, Genesis P. Orridge, called you Cosmosis as soon as he met you. How do you occupy that brilliant name now after all the years of having it? I think I, I, um, kind of possessed it right from the beginning. Well, it's quickly, <laughs> Cosmosis quickly got shortened to Cozy anyway. And um, I mean, some of my, my actual biological family, they still call me by my original christened name of Carol. But I think there's only, what is it now? Four people that call me that name in the whole world. Everyone <laughs> else calls me Cozy and um, and that's what I respond to. So that's, that's fine, you know, it's who I am. And I love that it still has that... Um lovely comforting quality to it in some ways but also the weirdness at the same time yeah whenever the word cozy comes up we're watching a film or anything is we me and christopher each other there i go again you know (laughs) (laughs) i i really loved resisters i'd um heard your soundtrack to the delia derbyshire film um and obviously that's what started you off um in your explorations i got the sense you were trying to trace your interest in lots of different women in music to see what new ideas could be created from that. Does that make sense to you as a description of the book? And was it a fun experience to try and make those connections? Um, I I tried to sort of focus, I mean, focus on Delia and then Marjorie, obviously, because of the connections between them two and or me and them together and so on. But um it, what happens is that you just suddenly realise that other women are involved in these two stories, you know, and that's what happened when I was doing research. But um, I think the word fun is a bit, you know, it, it, there were moments of fun. I mean, you must know as a writer yourself, it's hard work. Yeah. Research is really hard work. But at the same time, it's fascinating and really rewarding. And you get like little um, gems that pop up, you sort of think, hang on a minute, I never knew that. And then you go and explore that and then something else occurs that actually links to what you're actually talking about at the beginning. So it's worth going down those rabbit holes when you're researching for sure. So, um, yeah, I think writing with them was fun in a lot of ways, especially, you know, when you suddenly think, yeah, I've got it, especially with Marjorie, (laughs) because she's so hard to get, in inverted commas. it was just like, you know, epiphanies with Marjorie throughout, basically. Can you tell us a little bit about Marjorie, who she is? I know lots of um, our listeners will know of Delia Derbyshire from the Radiophonic yeah. Workshop. Obviously. Marjorie was um, uh, a mystic um, from medieval times. She was born in 1373 in the town local to me, which is Kings Lynn. That's why I was so interested in her, because she existed there. And I, I only just recently found out about her. And um, and she lived a life, typical life up to a certain point, 
um, had 14 pregnancies, for one thing, before she was 40 years old. And then she went off on pilgrimages. She had these visions right from her first um, uh, her first childbirth experience. And um, from then on, she was kind of looking outside the life she had. And I, I, from what I've discovered about her and I interpret her life, she was already looking for outside the life she had when she got married. She got married quite late for those times. And um, she didn't do what she was told even within her status <laughs> then. She was wearing these really extravagant clothes that only someone above her should wear and also things that the church disagreed with. So uh, she was already rebelling right from her teenage years. What were your um, favourite things you found out about Delia and Marjorie? There's so much in there. Oh, gosh. There are no favourite things with either of them, really. Just the fact that uh, overall... um, their personalities and and who they are and what they wanted to do with their lives um, was just the, the everything to me because they just they didn't want to sort of like do as they were told they didn't want to stay where they should have been you know according to culture and society of their times and that's what was great about both of them I think they're both little diamonds to me when I was coming here today I was thinking about um, how you've talked about Hull in that mix of your own character, obviously talking about Marjorie there, um, being from the same part of the world, made me think a bit of um, Norma Watson, the folk singer, who talks similarly about that part of the world and the women from that part of the world, you know, feeding their personality. Um, also made me think of the, about the beginning of art, sex, music. This is probably one of my favourite introductions to a memoir ever. Yours was a difficult birth, my mother told me. I was born with my left elbow bent and my fist firmly wedged against my chin like Rodan's The Thinker. Then she added with a smile, you've been difficult ever since. (laughs) I love in that, you know, obviously the imagery, but also this little connection between mother and daughter and this acknowledgement Mm. of personalities in the mix. Can you tell me more about those roots for you? Um, You know, these Hull women who um, have a sort of spirit because of, you know, the maybe the harshness of the place, you know, the difficulties the city uh, faced after, you know, the Second World War? Well, I mean, my experience of Hull, I mean, I'm sure there's other cities and towns that are very similar where women have had to sort of um, fight their corner, whether it's literally or it's quietly, and um, making sure that they're safe, basically. And it was like that in Hull, but even now I find the women in Hull are, um, yeah, a force to be reckoned with. (laughs) You know, you have, like like Lily Baloka, who fought for them, for the fishermen to get safe conditions on board ships because so many of the, of the women's husbands were dying, you know, when they went out fishing. And, um, yeah, she, you just have to look at her and you can see that's, um, that's a woman that you wouldn't argue with, really. Yeah. And a lot, of, a lot of the women in Hull were like that. They were very – I didn't know many – yeah, there were timid women as well as there are everywhere or people that just didn't want to – cause a problem for themselves because their husbands were already you know uh something to sort of like deal with which wasn't very pleasant but yeah they were very my mum was pretty good she was um she was supportive and and careful what she did and what she said in front of my father or what she told him so that I could actually be me that was what was so wonderful about her and a lot of women in Hull were like that and some were more sort of open about how they felt about things but you you knew the women in Hull just knew what they wanted to do what is it Chris always says um I'm from Hull I'm up up north 
and I do what I want when I want and how I want. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, um, you know, reading your books, you know, the sense of your character and your strength, but also your warmth comes through so strongly. I'm somebody who's constantly nervous about reproach. Cozy Fanny can you give me some advice about how I should face the world in a way that's fearless? You know, or maybe it's reading your books again, but... Um, I thought I, well, I just basically want Cozy to be my agony aunt when I'm unsure about, you know, <laughs> branching out and doing different creative things. I can only say what I do. And I, I've learned <laughs> uh, from a very young age to really lightning speed assess the situation, see what the future holds with either one scenario or the other and then respond to it. And I'll that's what that. I do. And that's what I do when I meet people. I, I have this kind of instinct over the years whether I can cut through, I don't know if I can say the bullshit, really quick. You can say whatever you like. Yeah, yeah I cut <laughs> through the bullshit and I, you know, I think, yeah, right, tell me all that. You love me and everything. Yeah, I'll never see you again because you just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just useful in this moment, you know. But so, yeah, that's what I do throughout life. I don't suffer fools gladly, basically. It's what my, my Ching thing said to me. All those years ago, they were so, it was so right. A friend of mine did it for me when I was about 18, 19. But already, I was already doing that anyway. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'm taking that on board. So, Cozy, um, these are the questions I ask all my guests on mm -hmm. Songbook. Um, sometimes people have answers to all of them, sometimes they don't, but I'm always interested in, you know, what responses the questions spark. Okay, so what was the first music you loved? Gosh. Well, you go from when you're very young, you sort of go along with whatever's on the radio or TV. I mean, even back then, the radio was on all the time when I was young. You can ask your mum, she will know all about this. <laughs> <laughs> it was on all the time because we didn't have daytime television, you know. And in our house, we didn't have a record player either. So listening to music on the radio and my mum singing along with it. So that was good. Um, but on top of that, once we got, like um, them playing like what was called the hip parade, pop tunes and all things like that. And then you'd get um, Top of the Pops and Jukebox Jury and all that kind of thing with new songs that were coming up in the charts. That's when I um, started to get my favourites. But I think the first time I actually loved one particular thing was when I heard Julie Driscoll and Brian Auger and the Trinity yeah. singing This Wheel's on Fire because I thought, yeah, this is me, my wheel's on fire as well. And she looks like <laughs> I want to look as well. You know, she had these, and I did actually copy her eye makeup because I thought it was so cool with the like, like spikes, the bottom, but oh, I, yeah. I put I put little dots on mine. Um, but yeah, I loved that because I thought, yeah, I'm heading into a hippie territory now. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't fit within this pop world and stuff like that. Julie just goes where it all began. I love that. Um, who was the first music writer you loved or the first person who wrote about music in any way that you loved? I don't really, I don't really have one. I, I think I suppose write about music, it would go into knowing music journalists once we started doing Throbbing Gristle. And the one that we actually connected with the most was John Savage. Mm. And, I, and I've followed his writing ever since because I, I always really loved it. It was was again it was so well researched and informed and the way he described things was just yeah it was just incredible and he, he just got tg and we um we asked him to do a few um, pieces of writing for us for album covers so yeah john savage without a doubt 
Brilliant. The, uh, you know, somebody we all look up to. And when I read John Savage's books, I just want to throw my laptop, you know, into the sea, basically. <laughs> so good. <laughs> uh, what was the first music book that you loved? Don't really have one. I'd have to go very recently, you know, and that goes into, you know, too recent, really, because I didn't read uh, books about music. I was too busy doing other stuff. I didn't yeah. read an awful lot for many years because I just didn't have time. Yeah. You know, I mean, I read like back, right at the beginning, I read different things like Crowley and stuff like that and Ed Sanders about the family, Charles Manson, that kind of thing that you'd expect, Lord of the Rings, that stuff, The Hobbit. <laughs> but after that, I just did not have time to sit and read a book. And then you have a child and you don't have time to sit and read a book either, you know, <laughs> yeah. because you know what that's like. And then um, it wasn't until I, I actually got ill with my heart problem that I started reading a lot because then I was doing a degree. So there were a lot of things to read. And did you enjoy that process of losing yourself in a book? I, I did. I asked, yeah, because I, I was thinking the other day that one of the funniest moments I've had because we started watching Seinfeld again and I read a book of his scripts in the bath and I, I remember just laughing and laughing the whole time and I, I just didn't want to get out of the bath. I must have got, come out really wrinkly because I just wanted to finish a couple of chapters. You know? Oh, what's your favourite Seinfeld episode? This is going off into a completely different podcast now. I like the oh, one. I think um... Not Elaine dancing. Oh, yeah. No, I, I love um, the Master of My Domain one. Do you know the one where there's the naked woman in the flat opposite? And they've all got... Oh, yeah, and I like the yeah. um, the one about the soup. That was oh, really yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> we are that going was... off topic, but, you know, yeah. I think... So many of them. But, yeah, okay. I, this is the next podcast series, you know, my favourite musicians on, you know, their favourite um, favorite sitcoms. Anyway, um, didn't expect that question to go that way, but I'm glad. So, anyway, from Seinfeld, we move seamlessly onto today's book, not seamlessly at all. So today's book is Daphne Oram's An Individual Note from 1972. Um, a quick biography of her for those of you who don't know her. She not only was one of the founders of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, but she was the woman who pressed the corporation for the need for its existence from 1952. This is what she wrote to them. Just as the camera and cinema film have exploded ideas of time and space in telling stories, surely the microphone and tape could do the same for music. I love that. She was also a brilliant composer from her early masterpiece, Still Point, written when she was 23 in 1948, featuring an orchestra accompanied by a soloist manipulating three 78 RPM discs on turntables with pitch, echo and tone controls. 1948. It was only premiered at the proms a couple of years ago to her soundtracks for the amazing early 60s film The Innocence. And she also did a six minute film called Atoms in Space, sounds from which uncredited were used in the early Bond films. She was also an inventor um, of the Oramics machine, which connected freehand drawing with the creation of sounds. She was all about connecting the human being with the machine. Um, so, Cozy, tell us about your interest in this book and in Daphne. This is obviously 1972 when you were, you know, doing lots of stuff that was similarly thoughtful and experimental. And I didn't know Daphne Oren was, or Delia, yeah. at that point. Yeah, we were, we were all doing our own thing, but didn't, well, Daphne and Delia knew each other, but I didn't know their, their things at all. I was like on the fringes and they were in an institution working. So it's very different to where I was. I, I had a different uh, circle of friends and um, and I was 
I was going all over the place. I was in London, but I was by then I was sort of reaching out and doing things ironically for the fanfare for Europe when we joined the EU. But that's uh, history, isn't it? Mm. Maybe I'll do another one when we rejoin, hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, but so, yeah, it, uh, the book itself we knew about. And um, Chris' fascination with um, all things technical and electronics, he was really into Daphne Aurum anyway. Um, and he actually paid for the publication of this book that I've just that we've read when it came out. He was part. Of, he um, donated money to the Kickstarter fund for it, and um, and got the album an individual note as well. So it read it back then, and then I read it because I was doing Daphne for Re Sisters. Um, and because, you know, just reading it, you know where her mindset is. And it's an incredible mm. book in that respect. It's um, almost like she's giving you a little talk, you know. It's it's getting into her mind, almost like a stream of consciousness at times when she's talking. Because she goes off on tangents, doesn't she? And yeah. then comes back and you sort of think, oh, that's good. And then she said, because at the beginning of the book, she sort of says, um, this is not going to be academic. I'll keep things simple. And then goes on, you know, capacitors. And I'm thinking, what? A capacitor? What? You know, please, Daphne, no. <laughs> please don't go down. <laughs> and then she makes it simple again because I think because she taught children and she really mm. wanted them to understand what sound was about. So when you read this book, although it is technical, which did you find it technical? Yeah, I found it yeah. very technical and very academic when I first yeah. I got the reprint of it. Um, yeah. She studied physics, you know, and you can yeah, see that. Exactly. Um, um, but you just, there's enough in there alongside these technical diagrams that's trying to yeah, connect with, you know, the ideas behind sound. And it's so much about, about connections between technical things and human things. Mm. So how the sparking of a musical idea is like the connection of an electrical circuit, for that's example. That's right, yeah. There's a one point she calls it... Um, the release of tensioned energy in a specific form over a determined time. If you think of that sentence, yeah, it's about electricity being started, but the creative process is, it is this release of tensioned energy. I haven't made an album, but I've made yeah. a book. That's what it was like, releasing this. It's like composers have a build-up, you know, just like a capacitor is charging up, ready to sort of release the energy, or the composer then releases it into creating a piece of work, a work, a piece of music. And then you have an endpoint, you know. And that's how she um, makes the um, comparison between human beings and um, capacitors, electronics, and and so it's music and electronics, and they're, they're not totally divorced from one another. Is in her world, it, they are together all the time. Mm. She thinks in terms of the universe. She's not just going down that line of like Delia does mathematics. Mm. Well, and Daphne, no, thank you very much. I, I don't want to be informed beforehand. I don't want to be influenced. I just want to be in there, in the moment, if you like, and create sounds, not like an orchestra, but just sounds, new sounds. Yeah, you know that. She's like a conduit, a fil you know, that comes through. And I, that's what I, I loved about the book. It is technical, but I think because of the way she is and the way her mind works, you get um you get drawn into it and you, you listen to Daphne rather than sort of pour over the trying to get through these sort of like technical details because she comes through in the end of each each sort of chapter, which she and then she kind of concludes it so you you know 
Mm. I mean, that was where she concludes. And then she goes, it's like yin-yang. And I thought, that was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. You know, a capacitor and a human being, you know, they come together. You know, yeah. there's the positive and the negative. And I thought that that was, you know, wonderful. But I think she she does actually quote Michelle de Montaigne, doesn't she? Yes. And I thought that was another real good thing for her. And she quoted him as, I am myself the matter of my book. And that, for me, summed this book up. Mm. that the matter of this book was Daphne mm. you know that's you get an insight into who she is um absolutely a fantastic mind yeah definitely and um you know it's quite a radical thing in a way to come out in 1972 you know I guess the general thought about electronics and machine music at the time was you know machines are very cold they're mm. very distant from human beings but you know People write, you know, these days about how electronics can be warm and can be human, but back then that was quite a pioneering idea. I, I think it was, yeah, because she she could have quite easily um, gone down. Well, she did like synthesizers anyway. She lists the ones she likes. <laughs> she want the ones that she regards as working well for synthesis for the synthesis of sound, like the Buchla and the VCS three and so on, Synthi one hundred, which Delia. Could mm. not stand for a while. VCS three, yes. Synthy one hundred, too big, too many choices. You know, <laughs> too not not sort of like um, in the league of how she liked to work. Mm. But with um, Daphne, she was quite different, very different. And um, that's what I, I liked about her is that when she's basically in this book, I und I understood it, and I might totally be wrong. Of the title of it, an individual note can mean so many things. But I think it's about like we just discussed, an individual note is the same as an individual person. Mm, and the definitely. note in music can have many aspects to it and nuances and formants that she talks about. And it doesn't have to be static and cold like we were just saying, you know. It, you can work with it to make, you know, like she discusses it. That's why she did the ceramics machine, to give pitch and form and, and so on to it. And um that's how I understood this book, an individual note. And each she takes you through each individual note. The chapters, to me, are those. One, she talks about the capacitor in terms of a human being. Then she moves on to the next thing. Then, in you know, intermodulation. But basically what she's saying is that these individual notes, as in, please note this, get to where I am with my oramics machine. Yeah. This is what it's all about. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I love in the second chapter, she talks about 
you know, when to be a human is to have great ranges of expression um, and range. You know, some moments there can be warmth, and some minutes there can be, you know, the opposite. There can be coldness. Um, mm. And her music does that as well. It kind of shifts between, you know, feelings, and that made me think of you know the way that you've always worked. You know that. You know, sometimes the sounds can be very distressing and the next moment they can be almost comforting. But that is much more in tune with how we can be as human beings rather than just, you know, in one mode of being at all times. Yeah, I, I find the, the way I work with music, because I don't do, I don't write music, I don't do notation. I, I can set off and start working on something, thinking where I'd like it to go. But then as, as the as the sounds come through, I work off them and they kind of then take me to different places than I initially thought I would go. And I'm quite happy for that to happen because it works with my feelings and emotions and reactions to the sounds that I'm creating. And I think that's how Daphne was, other than when she did jobs for, you know, ads and things like that that were specific. I think she was working with, you know, she calls her drawings for the Aramics machine curvaceous. She didn't mm. want hard corners or lines. Mm. And I think that's how, that's kind of analogy to how I work. I, I, I want it to be curvaceous. I want it to be responsive to how I feel and how I hear things and how they make me feel. Talking about individuality, she says that individuality is due to our changing wave patterns as people. So it's like us as wave patterns of sound. Oh, no. um, it's a great line about her saying, beware of busybodies who go around telling you what you should feel and to almost like trust yeah. your energies, really. And is it not expressed in a particularly you know, hippie-ish way, you know, about no. your chakras or anything like that. It's about, mm -hmm. um, you know, we are made of these patterns of energy and electricity and you're going to like a certain piece of music because of your wave pattern. You might like it in a different way tomorrow because your wave pattern has changed. You know, it's about prioritising our, you know, sort of tastes and our interests. Mm. Yeah, I, I noticed something she said about that um, when she said sounding out each person um, consists of chords of wave patterns, like you just saying, sounding out their notes to reveal a personal wave shape, yeah. the embodiment of all one's own interpretations of the art of living. And that's individuality. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a wonderful thing to say. It's not about going by the textbook to create classical music, electronic music, or anything else. It's about your response, like I was saying, my response to sound, you know, my wave shape, if you like, that she's talking about, um, goes through my interpretation of my lived experience. And then yeah. the sound that I create comes from that. It's, it's individual. Yeah, it's fantastic. And she also wonders at one point if women are different to men because of our circuitry. <laughs> um, and if it makes that. them more resilient, which, you know, in some ways feels a little bit you know, old-fashioned, but I quite like this bit. She wonders if women have more amplitude when intermodulating an incoming signal by what meaning, you know, <laughs> something a man has said. <laughs> like the women in Hull, you mean? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And yeah, you know, well, at the end of that, she sort of says, oh, it could be the other way around. Yeah, she does, she does, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, she says, might this throw some light on the fact that women might might be able to withstand external hardship more than men, she says, which I thought was quite um, interesting. But, you know, thinking of her as this woman in you know this pioneering kind of thought about music you know she wasn't in the radiophonic workshop for very long Delia no. you know left you know there wasn't really a place for them within institutions that was long term really because maybe they followed their you know personal wavelengths you know 
that must have attracted you to, you know, Daphne's thinking as well. Oh, for sure. I think she definitely responded to um, what she was going through and the feedback, you know, sound-wise. You know, you can also, like, relate sound feedback to what she was getting mm. at the Radiophonic Workshop, you know. And she talked about white noise, and I think when the white noise comes becomes too much, you know, she says it's madness, you know, and, and it's human beings. Mm. If that intermodulation is too much and that feedback that she's getting is too much, she's out of there. Mm. you know and she's to save herself basically i think yeah but, um yeah well, it's very sad that she had to leave so quickly and you know it's funny how you're just talking about that white noise and our feedback you know quite often i was reading this book as like one big metaphor obviously for how we can use these terms in our lives away from music as well but she also talks at one point about how um chemical excitation of the circuits you know through things like drugs um can change yeah. our waveforms she talks really interestingly about that um um she compares it to you know what happens if pendulums are overswung you know they just end up bashing walls yeah. um, i was wondering what you think about that in terms of you know drugs and creativity and what she's saying about that yeah that I- I, I particular that kind of jumped out at me made me think did she ever take acid or smoked up mm. or anything because from what she says i get the feeling she possibly didn't because mm. most people that did it kind of opened their eyes ears and their brains and their world for them you know rather than close it down she's i, I, I got the impression she saw drugs as um, a negative thing that you shouldn't really sort of block things out but for me you know when i took them when i was younger they were they were regarded as mind expanding which I think she would have um, appreciated that. You think she let, you know, maybe her equivalent was being, you know, somebody who just followed her own instinct, you know, living in an oast house <laughs> in deepest, darkest uh, countryside, kind of just getting on with her own thing. Yes, maybe. <laughs> um. I love how she encourages people to meet music without any preconceived ideas. Um, that's something that really struck me. Um, to talk about, you know, my book for a moment, um, I was really keen to put in all the different kinds of music that I liked because they go from the most, you know, well-known pop songs to, you know, stuff like Eliane Rodigue's Drones. You know, I love them all in different mm-hmm. ways. Maybe my personal wave shape is quite weird or whatever. But... um. I was wondering what you thought about that. You know, do you try and meet music without any preconceived ideas? And have you found yourself liking things that surprised you or might surprise us because you've met music in that way? When I read that, I was really pleased to read it because I thought that's how when we did TG, that was the whole point of it, Mm. was that, you know, people had never heard this kind of sound before and, and not a gig like it either. So if you came with some kind of preconceived notion about what you're going to get, you would be very disappointed or at the extreme horrified. Um, And either would, you know, that was fine by me because I didn't want to give people, um, or we didn't want to give people something that they'd already got. We wanted them to have something new. And from there onwards, you could kind of like diversify and other people might take on the same similar idea. So I really liked that. And, and it made me think as well, because she was talking about how gigs stayed with you. And that made me think of your book immediately. 
And I thought, well, that's what Jude was talking about in her book, <laughs> you know, and about how the, those kind of um, experiences and, and songs and music follow you through your life and they trigger little um, memories and emotions and feelings and they can be negative and positive, but I mm. think mostly you hang on to the ones that give you a good feeling. But I can't think of... Um, I think possibly if I go back to my teens when I started going to festivals and I heard Pink Floyd and those kind of bands, I think that was um, that had a big effect on me because I didn't know. I mean, you hear the albums, but when you hear it, you know, there, well, across a huge field and it just fills the skies, basically. Um, mm. It's quite something else. There's nothing like live gigs. Mm. Especially if you're in a crowd of people that are into it. Yeah, similarly affected by it. Yeah, totally. I remember watching The Who yeah, very that. early on in a very small venue when there was at the time where they were smashing their gear up. And I thought, God, this is this is really nuts, you know. Why did they smash their gear up? <laughs> but yeah. It was a good thing. Did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it, yeah. One thing because we were out of hull for once to see a gig. <laughs> and I was like, Where was um, it? I can't remember. I think it was somewhere near the coast. It wasn't that far away, but far enough away that I felt like I'd journeyed <laughs> from my hometown. And I was out later than I should be. So I knew that I was, you know, I'll enjoy this because when I get back, there'll be hell to pay. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there must have been. So that was when the Who were kind of um, in their early stages. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah. She definitely also writes about, you know, memory, as you said, um, uh, oh, she's got some lovely phrases, you know, ones recorded with extreme clarity from childhood, recorded on virgin tape. Yeah, I liked that. Our tape in our head is clear. Yeah. You know, she's, there's some really beautiful writing in this as well, yeah. isn't there? You know, aside from around the diagram. Yeah, and <laughs> when she says that they're like, um, as children, because we, you have got, you've got like um, a blank tape and then you hear things and you experience things and you gradually fill that up, which is really nice because our... We also like, as, as children, when we see things for the first time, that's a whole new thing. You know, we take things for granted. Like, I remember my friend saying to me once, you know, as, as a child, you, as a grown-up, you don't appreciate the fact as a child, being physically smaller, you're closer to the ground. You see more of nature and the actual ground that you're walking on and living part mm. of. And um, as you get taller and taller, it's so obvious. You start looking at things higher up and these things get forgotten. And it's it's mm. that filling up of the tape, or when she talks about when you're when you're a composer later on in life, that blank canvas or that um, blank page, um, or like starting a music piece, you sort of think, hang on a minute, I can't do anything. It's just where do I start? You know, whereas a child, that doesn't even occur to you. You just absorb it. It's something new and fascinating. It's wonderful. That's what I loved about having a child was that seeing my son go through things for the first time was amazing you know did you think about how it was different to when you'd gone through them yeah I think so I didn't think of it like that I just saw the wonder in his eyes when things were new mm. I thought that was amazing mm. but I did move him out of London pretty quick because um the only, <laughs> the only the only link to my childhood was that I thought it's very different if we stay in London Whereas, like, when we moved to the countryside, um, he could actually be a child for a bit longer, mm -hmm. you know? 
Yeah, and it's amazing seeing a child, you know, grow up and start to listen to sound and listen to music mm. for themselves. So um, that is um, Daphne Oram's An Individual Note of Music, Sound and Electronics. <laughs> it's published by Anime Academic um, along with the Daphne Oram Trust and it is a beautiful reproduction with lovely photographs and uh, amazing sort of chapter titles that are in themselves, oh, wow. like, you know, yeah. poetry. And the, the, the paper beautiful. is really thick. It's wonderful. You feel like you're reading and holding something special. Definitely. I'm sure after we talked about that today. Thank you, Cozy. Um, so um, before we finish today's episode, um, you've got two more music book recommendations from me. Obviously, you didn't like music books when you were younger, but you do now. Yes, I do, yeah. <laughs> what are your recommendations? Um, well, the first one would be Barry Adamson. Up Above the City, Down Beneath the Stars. I was just, it's not the kind of book I would normally read, but because of his soundtrack music, I was kind of drawn to it to see where he came from, what his early um, experiences were, what his life was about and so on. And um, I just absolutely adored what it. What did you find out? Oh, What did you find out? I think, well, You've got to read it. Somebody's got to read it. There's so there's so much about it. But uh, what I loved about it was that he didn't hold back from discussing his family life, what was going on in the family. I don't want to spoil it for anyone because it's such a wonderful book, going through how he got into music and then how he got into doing soundtracks and so on. It's obvious it's his journey like that. But I just love the fact that he was so honest in it. And uh, people say a lot of that oh the memoir is so honest and brutal but um i think with barry's it's warm as well you can you can get a sense of um affection throughout the whole the whole of his story no matter you know what he was going through and his family were going through there's that warmth that you feel and it wasn't I, i'm someone that usually has two books on the go and i know some people sort of frown at that but I, that's just who i am i i like to have two <laughs> books um and with him and the next book, that didn't happen. I just had to sit with them the whole way through. I didn't have a second book at all. And that's how, I suppose that's how I kind of measure how I really love a book, is that I never want to put it down in, and then go and enter someone else's story, you know. So, yeah, Barry's is, is, is a beautiful book. That's a new one for me. I've got that on my on my list yeah. now. And the other one is by a writer who was on um, the first season of... Um, songbook and I was delighted to see you picking this one tell us about this one well as I was reading it I was making notes this is Sound Within Sound Sound Within Sound Sound by Kate Mollison and I was sent it and um, I thought this is about classical music that's not something I'm into why and then it was such a huge surprise once I started reading it and I absolutely loved it the way she wrote about uh, sound it was almost like I could hear it. It it's just yeah. so beautiful the words and she uses and it and it's obvious how much she adores um music and I in brackets sound because this book is about people that go outside classical music, people that experiment and they don't sort of um stick to what you know, what you'd expect classical music to be. And I, I just I just love that. The music, the people she went to interview and studied and described their music were all people who sound was their life. It wasn't about um, orchestras or, or reading um, notation and then just copying it. 
they were out there, you know, literally as people and, and out there with their sound. And they, they didn't compromise. And I think that's why I probably loved it because I was reading about people that don't want to compromise. They're just going to do what they do. And like, like my book was about really. So it was, it was just fantastic. Yeah, and probably, you know, inspiring is a really overused word, but people who were making music in all kinds of circumstances all around the world and sort of redrawing that map of what 20th century classical music should be about. I mean, I do love some classical music, but this was about the potential and power of music, either inside classical music yeah. where a lot of these people did did inhabit and then outside of it as well, that they realised that this potential... Um, there was potential outside of that as well. And that's what I loved is that they were happy to step outside their training and try something totally different. Like like Daphne said, you know, no preconceived, no influence. Mm. And, I, and what I got from this is that they managed to jettison all that influence and do something very, very different to what they've been trying to do. Definitely. Um, two great recommendations. Thank you very much. Um, and finally, um, a book song for us. What have you chosen? Oh, there was only one, really. Venus in Fairs by the Velvet Underground. <laughs> I just, I mean, make of that what you will when I first heard it when I was 16 and um, it spoke to me and I wasn't into BDSM at that point, but there you go. You know, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Does it still have the same effect on you now? Oh, yeah. That song. When you yeah. Hear? Yeah. I've loved it all the way through from being very young, and um, and it meant something to um, me when I met Chris as well. So, and that's our relationship is still really strong now. So, yeah, it had to be Venus in Fairs. Fantastic Brilliant. atmosphere, and the lyrics are just great. The yeah, the sound of that record is like nothing else, isn't yeah. it? I can remember hearing that, and I was sixteen, seventeen, yeah. and just you know, just thinking of you know, vistas and it's cinematic and it's weird. And um, and also the story I didn't put in my book, which I always think, why did I not put the story in the book? Is how I was taught violin by the guy who taught John Cale the viola. Oh, wow, wow. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a story for another time. Um, but I've, I've written about it on The Guardian. You can Google okay. it. It's quite amazing. But um, yeah, the sounds he can bring out of that instrument. But yeah, fantastic. Venus and Furs. It's absolutely perfect. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for being my guest today, Cozy. It's been fantastic. Yeah, I've loved talking about Daphne and all other things as well. It's been really good. Thanks. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, just to remind you all that um, songbook episodes from seasons one and two are up now on Apple Podcasts and many other streaming services. Um, do try and um, like and subscribe. I know those algorithms are annoying, but it really helps us get known and guess more people listening. And as we know from this week, listening is very important. Um, thanks again, Cozy. Um, thanks for listening, everyone, and see you next week. This has been a White Rabbit and Carmelite Studios production, presented and written by Jude Rogers. Music by David Holmes. Episode producer Jake Alderson, editor Dan Jones. <laughs>